You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Great form by you hitting play on this podcast. Now check out Same Racer, the brand new racing app for same race multi tips. Same Racer. Download from the App Store and Google Play. Powered by Bluebet. Gamble responsibly. Call one eight hundred eight five eight eight five eight. I thought it was uh, timely that we uh, play a little bit of Murder She Wrote type music. That's to get us ready for our guest tonight. Uh, he's a journalist, investigative journalist. <laughs> At the Australian, uh, Australia's most famous podcast journalist. He's got the Teacher's Pet, the Teacher's Trial, the Night Driver, Shandy Story, and so on. He's won seven Walkley Awards. Seven Walkleys. Yeah, two gold Walkleys. And no doubt he is the smartest guest we have ever had on this show. He's our Angela Lansbury. Nobody else's. Headley Thomas, welcome to Sports Day. <laughs> Hey, thanks so much. I thought you were going to compare me to Maxwell Smart. <laughs> we could do that. All right, let's start again. <laughs> yeah. Actually, who did you want him to from Moonlighting? Yeah, Sybil Shepherd. Sybil Shepherd. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but, oh, yeah. So we like to do things a little bit differently stuff. here, Headley. Hey, thanks for joining us on Sports Day. Many might be thinking, why is Headley Thomas coming on? Because what's the sports uh, attachment to this? And we had some... Some of our listeners last night, which I text you through some of their feedback about how much they love your podcast, and most notably the Teacher's Pet, which the link to sport is, of course, uh, only a few weeks ago, the the, um, the guilty verdict upon Chris Dawson in the disappearance and murder of his, his first wife, Lynn Dawson. So um, I suppose for you coming on the show, and, and our listeners are a big fans of yours, and that podcast itself, why that case? How did it come to your attention, that that matter, that disappearance of Lynn Dawson? You and I share an interest in that case, Scott, because you were for a while uh, looking at you know Chris and Paul Dawson as senior teachers at Coombe State High. I didn't know them when I went to Kebra Park, but they were there the year after I left. And the disappearance of Chris's wife, Lynn, had intrigued me since 2001 when I first heard about it and reported on it. And I just... Come 2018, really wanted to get my teeth into it. I, I started investigating it at the end of 2017. I spent about six months uh, looking through thousands of pages of documents, travelling to Sydney and Newcastle and up to Harvey Bay, where I interviewed Chris's uh, eldest daughter, Chanel, uh, who's just been on 60 Minutes. Mm. And uh, uh, the more I got into it, the more I believed that Chris Dawson had got away with murder. And I just wanted to try to present a story that would unearth new facts and new witnesses and hopefully help motivate authorities to do what I reckon they should have done many, many years ago and put him on trial. Well, the depth of your investigation and, and uh, the gathering of evidence was, was second to none. And when you, you talk about back in 1982 when Lynn disappeared, Lynn Dawson, was it a flawed, was it flawed based on the the Chris Dawson being a recognised sportsman at the time and he had this great ability to convince detectives. Maybe, or were detectives in awe of him, do you think, back then and hence why there wasn't a thorough investigation, Headley? Mate, I think both of those uh, matters were in play. 
Chris and Paul Dawson were not just great footballers, they had profiles as celebrities and it was the twin factor. They were also, um, they had burgeoning careers as models. You can go back and look at some of the things they were in. For example, remember the old um, corn chips ad, Mm. you know, where they'd say, just say CC. Mm. You can look at the stuff on YouTube and there they are uh, presenting themselves and they, they had significant profiles, but they were also playing still in the early 80s, uh, late 70s for the Belrose Eagles, which was the club on the Northern Beaches. And that club's senior patron and uh, president was a senior manly detective. Uh, The Dawsons knew other police. And I think at that time, police and footballers had a much stronger relationship. There was a bit of... um, I suppose, you know, wink and a nudge with a lot of the, you know, sorts of things that were going on at that time. I'm not suggesting for a minute that police believe that Chris Dawson killed his wife, Lynn, and deliberately turned a blind eye. I don't think that it would be anything like that. I just reckon that because of who he was and because of their profiles, they got an easier run. They didn't come under the scrutiny. There wouldn't have been... Um, as much suspicion that might fall, for example, on uh, you know a, a, a plumber who you know had no profile and wasn't famous for anything. During your investigation, Headley, and when you're gathering all of your evidence, was there, uh, in your mind, a stage of that investigation where you thought there was a, a gotcha moment, a defining moment where you thought that piece of evidence I think is just too overwhelming? Yes, there was, and it was. When I found a document that was a handwritten statement, Chris wrote it, and he wrote it in August 1982, and it hadn't been seen by either of the coroners in 2001 and in 2003 who recommended that he be prosecuted for murder. Uh, Of course, the DPP repeatedly refused to prosecute Chris for, for murder. But this document, which Chris wrote, for the police was his account of what had happened, what the circumstances were when Lynn disappeared, his own situation, the efforts that he said he had gone to. And it was full of lies and omissions. And for a prosecutor, that kind of um, uh, evidence is gold because it evinces what they call a consciousness of guilt, not always, Sometimes people can tell lies, not because they're trying to cover up a murder, but because they're worried about getting into trouble for something else. And, you know, that was argued by Chris's defence lawyers in his murder trial. But this document that I found in the New South Wales State Archives, by a bit of luck and a bit of design and and, um, and uh, a big fluke, you know, was for me this um, incredible moment where I thought, Here's something that Chris himself has written, which shows that he was lying to the police in August 1982 about Lynn's disappearance uh, in January of that year. And he was lying about the connection that he had, this very unusual connection to the schoolgirl, the girlfriend that he wanted to start his life, wanted to start a new life with. He was lying about um, his movements. He was lying 
about uh, timings, and he was also lying about having gone to all this trouble to try to find Lynn. As we know, he moved the schoolgirl back into the house at Bayview just two days after Lynn had disappeared, or as we now know, as she was uh, two days after she was murdered. So, Headley, you talk about that document and you just stumbled across it. How did you actually stumble across it? The most unlikely way, I was interviewing a woman called Sue Strath and she was Lynn's great friend on the Northern Beaches. And Sue, who is, you know, in her 70s now, but she gave me a lot of time and she talked to me about how she was suspicious of what had happened right from the start. And she was so upset with the police for not running a proper investigation in the 80s. So Lynn disappeared in 1982, but nothing happened. Sue wasn't visited by the cops. So she decided that she would make a complaint to the New South Wales Ombudsman. And the Ombudsman in New South Wales had the power to investigate a lack of action by police. So Sue put in this handwritten complaint that, you know, was very detailed, talked about the schoolgirl lover, talked about how Lynn would not have left her girls, about how she had this house that was then worth a quarter of a million dollars. Suddenly she just vanished and the schoolgirl moves in. It all seemed to um, convenient. And Sue was effectively alleging, you know, foul play in her complaint. And I said to Sue, well, what happened? She said, oh, they just dismissed it. I wanted to get my hands on her complaint. I wanted to find out what she wrote and how the New South Wales Ombudsman dealt with her complaint. And I knew that being a government department, mate, they archive everything. They keep so many documents. You can imagine how many public servants would be emailing each other internally, back and forth, trying to get to the bottom of Sue's complaint, wondering probably how they would deal with it. And so I thought, well, I'll go to the state ombudsman's office and ask them if they got this in archives. They said they didn't, but it would have been destroyed. So then I tried New South Wales State Archives, and it's this um, big facility way out west. I think the place is called Kingswood, about 60 kilometres west of the CBD of Sydney. And I was talking to this really helpful woman there because, um, you know, I told her what I was looking for, and she went through the archives and said, oh, yeah, we've got a file here on that. Uh, but it's going to be exempt for at least 60-odd years. It's off limits. So then I applied to the ombudsman. I said, look, that file you told me has been destroyed. We've actually found it, but you know there are some restrictions on, on its release. Can you release it to me? They agreed to release it to me. And in that file, I got the whole investigation folder where the police were trying to tell the ombudsman that they did run a proper inquiry in 1985, and as and in their attempts to persuade the ombudsman that they got across the case, they produced this handwritten statement from Chris Dawson that had been lost for all these years. So that handwritten statement that Chris Dawson wrote that hadn't been seen by the two coroners or the prosecutors who acted on those coroners' recommendations suddenly materialised for the first time in ages in that folder. What I didn't know when I found the document was that the cold case homicide squad in New South Wales that was also running an investigation parallel to mine, but obviously they've got a lot more powers than I do, they had themselves recently found the same document. I don't know how they came across it, but we both had found this document and uh, it was um, very powerful evidence in the murder trial. Well, with all that evidence, it's amazing. With, that, with all that evidence... Was there, did you feel at any stage during the trial 
that it wasn't going to be enough? Mate, I believed that the case against Chris Dawson, circumstantially, was really strong. And you and I, I remember, talked about this at different times, and I expressed my view, and I think you were, you know, more open-minded than I was because I had probably just been exposed to it directly for a bit longer and had formed a fixed view. But I felt that if it were prosecuted professionally and the judge would uh, understand and follow the evidence, that it was a really compelling, strong case and that the lies Chris Dawson told and the circumstances surrounding Lynn just suddenly disappearing after marriage counselling in which she said, and he said, it went so well, you know, the marriage is back on track. And then the next day she just disappears wearing a pair of pink shorts and uh, and leaving behind her jewellery and all of her clothes and all of her possessions and never returning to a house with 250 grand or the children. Uh, while, you know, he has uh, put in her bed his... Um, former schoolgirl lover, like all of that just was so damning. It just flies in the face of, you know, human behaviour and what is, um, you know, I think reasonable. And, it, and so, you know, the case was very well prosecuted. I think the judge was quite brilliant and he seemed to come to grips with a huge amount of evidence in a relatively short time and then in his judgment went through it in such clever, granular and precise detail that, uh, you know, the guilty verdict was inevitable. Now, I've never asked you this question, so I'm putting you on the spot here a little bit. Lynn's body has never been found, mm. and it, it points towards someone who knows how to dispose of a body for it never to be found after 40 years. Was there ever a belief that he may have been assisted? Yes, and when he was charged with murder, the charge actually uh, leaves open the possibility that he killed Lynn with the assistance of others. Could be one or more. And that question, of course, may never be really answered because I think Chris Dawson's unlikely to have confessed where she is and whether he was helped. He could have done it on his own. My personal view, Scott, is that Chris Dawson killed Lynn with his bare hands and that he probably got help with disposing of her body, but we don't have the evidence of that. Mm. Now, with the incoming nobody, no parole, New South Wales. The reason I think... Yeah. Sorry, I cut you off there, mate. I was just going to say, one of the reasons that I believe Chris Dawson did the murder himself is because he is not a trusting person. He would have taken a massive risk, even with a professional hitman to have killed Lynn. He also, I believe, would have been not wanting to spend money that he didn't have, that he could ill afford if he could do it himself. And I think that there's a very interesting part of the evidence where Lynn's mother, Helena Sims, when reflecting on the phone call that she'd had from Lynn on the Friday night, bearing in mind that um, Lynn's probably killed on the Friday night or the, or the Saturday morning. But on the Friday night, Helena wants to talk to her daughter. 
and Chris answers the phone up at Bayview. Helen is at Clovelly. And Helena says, Chris, um, how did it all go? And he's talking about the marriage counselling and, and he was fine. And he said, okay, can I talk to Lynn? She, she didn't come onto the phone. He didn't want her to come onto the phone. And she pressed him and said, no, I want to talk to my daughter. And so Lynn came on the phone. And that's when Lynn was talking about how, sorry, and that's when Lynn was talking about how marriage counselling went really well. Please tell Greg, Phil, and Pat, her siblings, that everything's fine. We're back on track. Um, they got a marriage counselling holding hands that afternoon. The staff in the childcare centre saw that. And Helena noticed that Lynn sounded a bit, you know, well drunk. But it wasn't like Lynn because she wasn't a drinker. And Helena said, oh, you sound half sozzled to her daughter. It's that lovely expression, sozzled. And... Uh, Lynn had said, oh, yes, Chris has just made me a lovely drink. Now, um, you know, was there something in that drink that caused Lynn to then be um, unconscious or compliant, sedated? Was was there a, you know, some kind of um, um, sleeping um, potion or tablet in there and I know this might sound a little bit far-fetched to some of the listeners, but it's not a conspiracy theory. We have heard evidence from the former babysitter who talked about how when she was staying in the home, ostensibly to look after the kids, but she was there having sex with Chris in his family home while Lynn was in the house. And she gave evidence that... Um, Chris would mix his wife, Lynn, a drink and she would almost, well, she would soon fall asleep. Now, you and I and most people, you know, don't fall asleep straight after having a drink. You know, it doesn't happen. But with Lynn, when Chris mixed her a drink, she fell asleep. Did she fall asleep on the Friday night before she was murdered? You can only speculate that that comment she made to her mother and about the lovely drink and her mother noting that Chris didn't want her to come on the phone and then when she came on the phone she sounded you know half sozzled is possibly pointing to that mm. now I, I was going to ask earlier on about the incoming nobody no parole um, mandate that will come into New South Wales you would think do, do you feel of those feel as though that Lynn's family will ever know where where her body is but I really hope that something happens that somebody stumbles on Lynn's bones or uh, there is a disclosure by Chris or someone very close to him about where she is. I doubt, though, that Chris will volunteer the information. He's got an appeal process that no doubt he wants to uh, exhaust before he makes any disclosures whatsoever. And even when that's exhausted, if Chris has convinced himself that he hasn't done this, he's never going to admit anything. So tactically, you know, he should not, he he's, he would probably be thinking he should never say anything about where Lynn would be while he's still got the possibility of getting out, either with appeal, an appeal to the Supreme Court, then to the Court of Appeal, then even possibly to the High Court. We know that Chris, you know, has thrown a lot of money at trying to avoid trial in the first place. He went to the High Court after going to the Supreme Court and Court of Appeal 
to try to get a permanent stay of the proceedings. That means to try to effectively cancel a murder trial altogether. And he argued that he couldn't get a fair trial because of the podcast, The Teacher's Pet, and that that failed. So he may, again, uh, use every appeal opportunity at his disposal, and that's his right. Mm. Um, as for whether... Um, when that's at an end, he'll be able to he'll reflect on what's happened and say something. Um, I think it's unlikely. Now you said that you'd never do another one after the teacher's pet. Now you've punched out Shandy's story and the night driver and the teacher's trial. Can I convince you to take on the Jaden Lesky murder, which is twenty five year anniversary? May you and I need to go and have a long lunch, and you can brief me on <laughs> on how we can get into that. I'd like to do a podcast with you. I think, I think with your investigative skills, and uh, we know you've got a great voice, um, and uh, you, you are in—I can't remember which episode—but you're in uh, at least one of the episodes of the Teacher's Pet. Uh, I'd, I'd uh, team up with you. Yeah, and as as many listeners may not know, I, they played a really positive part in my life. The the Dawson brothers at my, my time at Coomba when I was seventeen years of age, they. They had played a really big part and role in my life and uh, had a really positive effect on me moving forward. So, yeah, it was, I was very distressed and upset and emotional when when um, it all came to head, but also at some point disgusted as well. So I covered all emotions. And Headley, we cannot thank you enough. It's absolutely yeah. fascinating listening to you um, to, uh, to dissect that case once again for our listeners who are massive podcast fans and uh, Teachers Pet fans as well. So thank you very much for joining us on Sports Day. Thanks, Scott. I, mean, I just wanted to also just say I thought that it would have been difficult for you being interviewed in the Teachers Pet because so many people didn't have anything good to say about either Chris or Paul Dawson, and yet they obviously had done some good things in their teaching careers. You know, the, the, it wasn't all one way, and no doubt a number of students were positively influenced by them. And I thought it was really decent of you to just say, well, look, I don't know about a murder, but this is what Chris and Paul Dawson were like for me as football mentors at Coombe Bar State High. And, uh, you know, you were open-minded and, and intellectually honest about their experience and your experience with them. And uh, I think that that helped round out a story that, unfortunately, because of all the other circumstances, uh, was not attractive for either Dawson. Thanks for listening to the podcast. And don't forget, you can listen to Sports Day every day from Monday to Thursday, 6pm or 5pm Queensland time. Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why tyre power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tyrepower.com.au or call 13 91.